0: Good evening. My name is Mark Oakley and it is my pleasure to welcome, to welcome each and every one of you here to St. Paul's this evening. It's so good to see so many of you and to have you here. I'll introduce our speaker in just a moment, but for those of you who haven't been to one of these events here before, I better just quickly explain how it works. In a moment, Steve Chalk will speak about how to become the person you were meant to be. He'll speak for about 30 minutes or so, and then we will have plenty of time for you to ask questions. And if you have a question, please write it on the back of your program and hold it up to be collected. And you can do this at any point during the talk or after the talk. And with the hot technology of the Church of England, those uh, questions will come up to me here on this screen. Uh, Some people have actually thought I'm just catching up with Downton Abbey. Uh, It's it's not true. Your questions come up onto the screen. We'll collect those questions until about 7.40. If you can keep them brief, uh, it will help and if you keep them legible, uh, they might get asked. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag Steve Chalk. If you'd like to send us your question through your mobile phone, just type in your question and include #SteveChalk with an E and we will find it. We'll end uh, at 8 o'clock and then there's a stall here where you can find and buy Steve's book, Being Human. And he's kindly said he will sign copies of it, if you would like, over on that table over there. So now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speaker. The Reverend Steve Chalk is a Baptist minister serving as the senior minister of Oasis Church Waterloo. Converted to Christianity as a teenager, he decided to dedicate his life to working to end poverty. And unlike many of our teenage dreams, he has stuck very much to his. And in 1985, founded the Oasis Trust, which now has over 5,000 staff, pioneering educational, healthcare, and housing initiatives, working in 10 countries in four continents all with the goal of ending poverty. He is, in addition, the founder of Stop the Traffic, a charity working against human trafficking, <coughs> surely one of the greatest forms of impoverishment that a human being, of course, can experience. And he's now also a UN Special Advisor on Community Action Against Human Trafficking. You might also know him as a popular broadcaster who's had his own shows on the BBC and ITV television, Radio 4, and he is a regular contributor to Radio 2's Pause for Thought. A man of courageous faith, he has challenged the churches to think again about core doctrines of the cross and about accepting faithful same sex partnerships acts of personal integrity, which have been costly for him in some ways, and also make, of course, for him being a somewhat controversial figure. I like that. If you don't stand for something, you're gonna fall for anything, let's face it. And I've always thought that when in doubt, it's better to err on the side of provocation. (laughs) He's a prolific author. And you might at this point be starting to wonder if there are actually quite a number of Steve Chalks because (laughs) there are so many interests and achievements. His latest book is Being Human, How to Become the Person You Were Meant to Be. And in that book, he writes, Your life is precious, a precious gift. It is sacred, every moment of it. The opportunity to live rather than sleepwalk through our days belongs to us. This is a call to each one of us to wake up, to wake up and live before we die. Well, it's no secret that there was in the Church of England a Victorian bishop who wrote a rather unusual will in verse and asked that it be read to his clergy on his death. It simply said, tell my priests when I am gone, owe me to shed no tears, for I shall be no deader then than they have been for years. (laughs) Well, Steve Chalk has brought back some life to this priest and we're absolutely delighted he's come to wake us all up tonight. So, please, would you join me in welcoming Steve Chalk?
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mark. So yeah. kind of you. Great.
0: Great.
1: Great. Great. Good, uh, good evening, everyone. Is this mic working? Can you hear me? Brilliant. Let, yeah, let, I think this one's working. Let me tell you a story. Um, it's a story that's not in my book. Um, uh, but it's a story that, well, if the book had been longer, perhaps I would have put it in. It's a story about a very famous rabbi who, uh, whose name was Akiva. Some of you may know his name. Uh, he lived um, a few years after Jesus. He was born uh, perhaps um, 20 years after, 20-30 years after uh, Jesus. And Akiva tells this story. One night he was wandering along the uh, northern bank of the Sea of Galilee. He lived in Capernaum. We know lots and lots about his life. It's very well documented. And he was a famous rabbi. He had many, many disciples, thousands of disciples. And uh, lost in thought, as he journeyed down the north bank of the, um, of, uh, the Sea of Galilee, He forgot where he was. You know that same feeling you get when you get in your car on a Saturday, if you drive to work Monday to Friday, you get in your car on a Saturday to go to the gym or the market or whatever, and you end up at your office by mistake. Has that ever happened to you? You end up in completely the wrong place because you drive on automatic. Well, that's what happened to Akiva, the equivalent. And as he wandered down by the Sea of Galilee, he was supposed to take the turn off for Capernaum. But he was lost in his thoughts, he said, around the book of Isaiah. He was thinking some of it through. And as the darkness descended, he just kept on going. Lost in his thoughts, he didn't wake up until a Roman soldier on the, um, there was a a fortress that was built there then. It it wasn't there in Jesus' day, but it was built um, a little bit later on. And uh, in this fortress, at the top of one of the towers, was a young soldier. And the soldier saw Akiva coming. And as he approached through the descending darkness and mist, he shouted down. And he shouted this He said, Who are you? Where are you going? Who are you? Why are you here? big echo here isn't there. <laughs> hey, that's why I did it twice. <laughs> Akiva looked up and suddenly realized that he was lost. But being a wise rabbi instead of answering any of the questions he said who are you? Why are you here? And the young soldier said I'm employed by the Roman army to watch this road. Who are you? Why are you here? Akiva thought about it a bit and then he said this, how much do you get paid to stand in that tower and shout those questions? The young soldier said 10 denarii, 10 denarii a day Akiva shouted back, I'll double that if you'll come to my house, stand outside my door and every morning as I get up shout at me, who are you? Why are you here? (laughs) Who are you? Why are you here? The biggest questions. In my book I do tell a story about a lady called Naomi. I read this story on the tube in London one uh, morning in 2011. I'd hopped on the tube and there was the metro and you flicked through the metro having nothing else to do and it told Naomi's story. Naomi woke up one morning on a housing estate and uh, she stumbled to the bathroom. Naomi was 16. Naomi was still at school. Naomi was getting ready to do her exams. Naomi was confident. Naomi, in her own words, was bold and brassy, with the world at her feet. So on this particular morning, as she stumbled to the bathroom and looked in the mirror, she had an extraordinary shock. So much so, that she screamed and she ran out of the bathroom. Only to discover that a young boy, an eleven-year-old, came rushing up the hallway, threw himself round her and said, what's wrong mum? She had no idea what was happening. Who are you? She said. And she stumbled back into the, well ran back into the bathroom and looked back in the mirror and there it was again. She was a 16-year-old girl doing her exams at school. The world was at her feet. She was bold and she was brassy. But staring her back in the mirror was a 32-year-old woman. And the 11-year-old boy who'd followed her into the bathroom said again, Mum, what's wrong? What was wrong was this. Naomi was 32, she was stressed and under the diagnosis for her condition, she was told later, became a famous case, that she had global transient amnesia. The stress in her life had thrown her back 17 years in time, so that she'd forgotten those 17 years and actually thought she was still at school. She said, later, I fell asleep, a young 16-year-old excited about life. And these are her words. And I woke up, a single mum living on a council estate with an 11-year-old son and unemployed. The question she asked herself is how she got from being 16 to being 32, none of which she could remember. How did one situation end up in a completely different outcome? As I read the story and researched it a bit more, I realised this, that without the global transient amnesia, endless thousands hundreds of thousands millions of people end up where they never wished to go in life for failure to address the most important questions who are you? why are you here? they stumble through life and end up where they never wished to go it is of course the story of humanity. And that oldest of all stories, the first creation story in Genesis chapter 1 addresses this. Genesis chapter 1, that liturgical poem, it's not, as you know, a piece of historical narrative. The world wasn't uh, created in six days 24 hour periods in that order sometimes people get upset that I say that and uh, I, I'm sure that most of you won't but when they do and if people do with you you know the w- easy way out of this it's to point them to Genesis chapter 2 which is another creation <laughs> story um, And, uh, but just ask, because people say the Bible has no contradictions. There's nothing in the Bible that contradicts anything else. Um, This is exactly how it happened. If you don't believe Genesis chapter 1 as literal truth, you're sunk. You know, if you don't even believe the first page, what hope is there for the rest of it? The point is, of course, to take the Bible seriously, which isn't always the same thing as taking it literally, And the point is here, I'll leave you with this challenge if you've never done it before. Read the order of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and then read the order of creation in the first verses of Genesis chapter 2 and you will discover they are different. Genesis chapter 2 disagrees with Genesis chapter 1 about the order of creation because they were different stories but because most people don't actually read the Bible, they never notice that. These are not historical texts to study in science. They're much more important than that. They tell us deep truths about who we are. And Genesis chapter 1, this fantastic poem, it tells the story of creation. It's told, as many of you will know, against some of the other creation stories that existed in other cultures, uh, the most famous of which being the Babylonian creation myth or creation story, which you can read online, Mark, can read it online even as we sit here because all you've got to do is Google those words, Babylonian creation story or myth, and it will it'll be in front of you through Google in seconds. And as you read the Babylonian creation story, and there were many like it, each race had its own creation myth or story, the story of how it came into being, you recognize that this sounds awfully like Genesis 1. It kind of, whoa, it's like a cousin of the story. It's almost like, whoa, whoever wrote one must have known the people that wrote the other one. And then you realize this. That probably Genesis chapter one was written in Babylon, you know, the famous psalm uh, made famous by that pop song. Uh, "By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept. you know, if you're kind of old enough to be around in the '80s, you probably danced to it at endless discos. Uh, there we wept when we remember Zion. How can you sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Here were the people of God in Babylon, they had no temple, the Sabbath day was gone, their feasts and festivities were gone, the priesthood was gone, the Davidic line of kings was gone, this was a truly alien land. How can you sing the Lord's song in this land when you're told a different story about creation that you believe to be a lie, which is about which is about actually the substance subjugation of women, the putting down of women, the honouring only of the king the putting down of the ordinary people, the trampling of them the fact that creation is a giant mistake as the gods fought against one another and so the Hebrew writers did rewrite the Babylonian creation story they corrected the mistakes as they understood them And they wrote their story, which is now the first chapter of our Bible. And uh, the story simply says this, that a good God, created not out of anger and war, humanity's not an afterthought, no, creation is good, all of it. It's good, says God, it's very good. But then comes this great verse, Genesis 1, 1, verse 27, as we have it and God said let us create them in our image let us create them in our image and uh, uh, male and female let us create them there it is in Genesis 1 who are you? why are you here? we are made in the image of God together we are his representatives. The Babylonian story and the British Museum, you can, you can visit and you'll discover, you know, the great statues of the Babylonian kings that they dug up in the Iraqi desert and they're installed there. You'll see the inscription around the kings just up the road from here, in the image of gods. That was the god of Babylon, Marduk. Um, in uh, God's representative, the king used to set up statues of himself actually in villages and towns to remind them that he was the representative God of God. But Genesis chapter 1, this fantastic poem tells us this. We are all in God's image, not just the king, not just the men, not just the aristocracy, not just the merchants, not just the military. Everyone is in God's image. Every man, every woman and every child. Which is why it was fantastic, I hear, that two female bishops were consecrated in this place today. Everyone is in God's image. We are his image bearers and his representatives. This is on the Bible, page one and it is still a revolution that half the world has not come to grips with. We are all God's image bearers. But there's a deeper truth about this. Who are we and why are we here? The deeper truth is this, that Genesis 1 does not say what you so often hear that it does say. I often say to someone, you're made in God's image. You're made in God's image. We talk about the fact that every one of us is made in God's image. And there is a great truth in that, but that's not exactly what the great poem of Genesis says. Let me recite to you verse 27 again. And God said, Let us make them in our image. And he made them male and female. He made them. Let us make them in our image. Though, of course, there's no understanding of the doctrine of Trinity in the Old Testament, let us make them in our image. There's this view that God is a community somehow. John Donne, the great uh, dean of St Paul's Cathedral in the early 1600s, mid 1600s, was, besides anything else, a fantastic Trinitarian scholar. Fantastic Trinitarian scholar. That's why he wrote that magnificent sonnet that I'm sure you all know, even if you know no sonnets. No man is an island, entire of himself. Forgive me, Mark, if I'm misquoting, (laughs) but you know, kind of, you know, entire of himself. Every man is part of the continent, part of the main. When the bell tolls, the death bell, we are all diminished, said John Donne. We are all diminished. Never ask for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Why? Because the dean of this cathedral understood that we are made together in God's image. That God, he said, these are his words, is the eternal community. I think he said the eternal college. God is the eternal community, and we together are in God's image. What does that mean? It means this that the individualism that has crept into our Western uh, culture and worldview is an infiltrator. One of the great things in dialogue with Islam at the moment, Oasis, the charity that I founded, we run 47 schools around the country. We run many schools in inner city Birmingham where the Trojan horse stuff happened, etc, etc. We run schools that we became responsible for because government asked us in almost entirely Muslim communities. We're on a giant secondary school in Bradford, in one of the poorest parts of Bradford. We're in dialogue, discussion. I mean, dialogue's a smart word, isn't it? I mean, we're talking with our friends all the time. One of the big issues between Islam and Christianity is that um, even Muslims who've lived in this country for many years still look at the individualism of the West and think it's to do with Christianity. And they think that the individualism of our way of life breeds permissiveness. And they believe that it breeds immorality. And they believe that it breeds the kind of individualism that is, brings down banks and cheats people out of money. That's one of their problems. We need to talk around that. And we need to say, we have misunderstood. Who are you? Why are you here? We are here together. I am most in God's image when I am with you. That's why I'm the leader of a local church. It truly is. That's why I've never stopped being the leader of a local church because I know this, that unless I am known and loved and love and know others, I am depleted and diminished. Let us make them in our image. And God, of course, is not a God of sameness. As we develop the doctrine of the Trinity, we talk about, and this, the creed that's spoken in this cathedral many times a week, I guess, says, we believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit. God is not a community, a college, to use John Donne's term again, of fathers, He's not a gaggle of spirits, not a gang of sons. This isn't some homogenous group of sameness, dress the same, look the same, same outlook. This is a community of diversity, father, son and spirit. And in that community is found love. If God is love, how could he be love eternally unless he had another to love? I can write a thesis on love, I can do a PhD in love, I can go to Harvard and do post-Ph studies in love, I can become known as Doctor Love. But unless I have someone to love and I give myself to them and I serve them, beyond my own interest when it hurts, I never know what love is. What can it possibly mean for God to be love unless he is a community eternally? And if we believe that we are made in God's image, then we are most in God's image when we are together in communities of diversity. Churches filled with 20-somethings and no 60 or 70-somethings miss out Churches filled with 70-somethings and no teenagers miss out. Churches where everybody likes the same kind of music or the same kind of coffee or doing the same kind of thing miss out because church and community is about diversity. And we as individuals, I truly believe, find ourselves in that. How do we find our purpose in life? you know, in the kind of Christianity I've grown up in and through I've been to thousands of church services that end with a challenge and the challenge is, so what will you do to serve God? How are you going to give your life to Christ? What is your vision for ending poverty? What is your vision for working amongst the poor? For challenging the situation that we find ourselves in, in Europe, with uh, so many who are homeless, refugees. What are you going to do? And so you get people that say, I've got a vision to build a hostel, I've got a vision to open a night shelter, I've got a vision to open a nursery, etc, etc. And off they go, fired up by that encounter and that moment and that inspiration. And as the months go by and the winter comes on and the nights grow darker and the weather is colder and the cash is hard to make flow, they slowly give up. How many people do you know like that? They give up and either they entrench in themselves or they hit out and they blame others for their lack of faith and their lack of support and their lack of prayer. And then, if they're anything like me, they get another great idea! (laughs) "Ah, I was gonna open a nursery, but that's no good. We're gonna open a post office! And they get everybody praying and supporting and it gets off to a good start and as the winter comes and the nights get longer and colder, the enthusiasm drains away and the thing stops. Many activists will tell you this, have you ever heard an activist talking, I am an activist so I know activists talk like this, they say, I've been in this church or this community or this neighbourhood 20 years, I've got 20 years of experience. What they actually mean is, I've been in this community 20 years and I've got one year of experience it's just I've had it 20 times. (laughs) I've never learned anything, I've never grown. Some of us are activists, some are reflective, some like to theorize, some like to turn that theory and all those papers into practice and be a bit pragmatic about the way things are. Activists, reflectors, theorists, pragmatists who like getting on with it. And we need one another. Oasis, I began it exactly 30 years ago this month in a room in Tunbridge in Kent where I worked as a youth minister. I had this idea of a hostel and a school and a hospital. And over the years, Oasis has grown in this country and around the world. And I've learned through my struggles and my mistakes as an activist that I need others. We are in the image of God. I most reflect God, I most enjoy life in the image of God when I'm with others and I'm with others that are not like me, that are different to me. My small story must be caught up in God's big story. Jesus said he only taught us one prayer ever, didn't he? Do you know that? There's only one prayer, you know, you'd think Jesus would have left a book full, you know, one for every week how neglectful he just left one prayer and he said and when you pray say our father your, uh, who is in heaven your name be honoured hallowed your kingdom come your will be done on earth what is God's kingdom? it's God's kingship it's, as, it's when God's in charge it's, as, it's what it would be like if God was in charge instead of the people who rip others off instead of the corporates, instead of the person that wants to extract the most cash for the least benefit to others. It's what it would be like if God's will was done on every housing estate and every refugee village and in every cabinet meeting, in every decision-making process that brings justice to all. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. When I was 14, through the gift of God really, I was wandering past Crystal Palace football ground in South London, I am a palace supporter, which until this season has been the worst thing to be on earth, but there we are now. If you don't know, we are in a European playoff place at the moment, early pickings though. The thing is, as I was wandering past Palace Football Ground on the way home from a Christian youth group, I had this encounter. Through those who'd invested their time and their lives, I now realise, the the adults that ran this youth club, I now realise they were all 21 and 22 and they were all students. But I looked up to them and I was inspired and I was inspired by their teamwork and I was inspired by their faith. And I decided that when I... That I was going to give my life to follow Christ, and when I grew up, I was going to start a hostel and a hospital and a school. I was inspired, but I understood that my little story fitted into a big story. In fact, as I finish, because I've taken my time and there's going to be time for questions, um, Aristotle, um, that most famous of all philosophers who lived about 350 years before Jesus, uh, he, uh, he said this, the only way to live is by a story. You have to, he said in life, have a telos. We know the word telos, Greek word telos, because of telephone, television, telescope, telegraph. Telephone is allows you to hear something that's a long way away. Television allows you to see something that's a long way away. A telos is an ultimate goal or end. And Aristotle said this, you have to live by an end goal, a distant goal. Unless you know what your end goal is, you will always waste your life. He decided that the end goal of life, the telos of life, was what he called the good life which is how we get that phrase, the good life. And he decided that the good life was to be healthy and to be wise. He decided that the good life was... um to uh, have good relationships and, and to be in a position of health and wealth really. He was the first health and wealth teacher in many ways that the world saw. He decided that's what the good life was and he constructed some habits that you needed to adopt to get you to your telos which was to live a good life. Jesus came and he said, I'll tell you what the telos of life is the ultimate goal. Your kingdom come Father, your will be done on earth through me. And he struggled with what that meant and he went to the desert to work out what it meant to be God's son and he was tempted with the way of power, throw yourself off the temple, turn these stones into bread. He was tempted in so many ways to the popular route to the root of fame, to the root of status, and he kept saying, no, 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 and he chose to tread a life of service, laying down his life day by day for God's kingdom. His story caught up in the kingdom of God, and then he said to you and I who choose to follow him, every day pray this prayer. And of course, a prayer is a liturgy, but it's much more than a liturgy, isn't it? It's more than a set of words you say at a given hour. A prayer sinks into your soul. It oozes out of you. You ache it. You live it. You dream it. A real prayer is what gets you out of bed earlier than you would do and keeps you up late at night. That makes you send another email, send another text, answer a phone call, send a phone call, plan a little bit more, sit there in the middle of a film or a meal, scribbling down notes wake up in the middle of the night this is what we've got to do and scribble it down on a pad if you're anything like me which you can't read in the morning but that's what a real prayer does it gets out of your head and into your hands out of your head and into your feet out of your head and into your arms and your legs it moves you, it motivates you and Jesus said make your telos the kingdom of God why are we here? why are we here? Who are we? Who are you? Why are you here? Jesus said, and pray this prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done through us together. That is our telos. Thank you.
0: I told you he'd wake you up Uh, now this is uh, your time, please write down your questions on your little programs, hold them up and uh, uh, they'll be collected and taken to the back and sent up to me here so that I can ask Steve your questions, I just want to start while that's beginning to, to take place be bold please, do hold them up um I remember reading that Mark Twain thought that... He said some Christians always feel to him as if they've got f- holding four aces in life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that actually they're a bit smug because yeah. they, uh, they've got the, the, the right cards uh, and the rest of us who are playing haven't. I, I can see uh, a query in myself perhaps, as, as well in, in people I would know, that that's good, I understand the argument, but I'm still struggling to know what my telos is. How do I, Jesus went into the desert, but what can I do? How do I
1: discern what would be, tell us the goal of my life
0: how, how do you go about that,
1: that, that that's a great question to w- which has more than one answer that I can think of and I'm sure many more that I can't think of um, the first thing is this this whole emphasis it's us it's us we are the you it's corporate it's walking together I happen to be the leader of a church here in central London Every church leader is expected to be bright and bouncy, in my case, at 11 o'clock. That's when our service happens every Sunday morning. Yeah, every Sunday morning, I've got to be there, I've got to be smiling, I've got to be fully online, I've got to have had great insights from the Bible, I've got to be able to articulate them clearly and in a way completely different to last week, otherwise people are saying, oh, you're getting boring. I've got to be fresh, I've got to be articulate, I've got to create, be creative and come up with some new great truth from the Bible and my living experience of faith over the last six days. This is impossible. No one has ever done it. I am as often I say to our, the people in our congregation I'm carried by them. Sometimes I carry others, sometimes I'm carried. Sometimes I feel just out of it altogether. I'm part of a church because a church is a community and we are made in God's image and we find the way forward of serving together. It's that it's that community aspect of life that we have lost in our individualism we are individuals but the individualism that makes us all competitive and work against one another all our songs start with I'm gonna serve the purpose of God I'm here to worship no we are together and sometimes I need to be carried by uh, the community the second thing I'd say is this well extrapolating that really The struggle of life, I I realise that because Mark and I, you know, I'm stood on this little platform which is about a foot high and um, all of that kind of stuff and I'm wearing a suit, you know, the only reason I'm wearing a suit is because I had to speak at something in Nottingham today and and it was a kind of suit-wearing occasion, you know, so I didn't have time to go home, but um, so... It kind of oh, it's okay for Steve cause he Steve chalk because he does these things, etc., etc., etc. My life is a grind and a struggle for most of the time. There are the 10% of the days I get out of bed and feel woohoo. There are. There are the 30% of the days I get out of bed and I think, oh no, I just can't do this and there's all the others in between that are just bland and grey. Mother Teresa, I'm always, always inspired by what an extraordinary person, but you may not know about Mother Teresa that when she first went to Calcutta, she left the uh, convent and she she felt that God was calling her to the streets to work amongst the dying, as I'm sure you know. And she arrived there um, and went out onto the streets in the 1950s, for the first time, and uh, you can buy a book now. And I forget the name of the book. Perhaps someone can, the book of her letters. Does anyone know what that's called? But anyway, you can buy. It's probably even in the bookshop here. It's a fantastic book. You can get it online. So here's the thing: only weeks into working in the slums, having felt God's call to go to the slums, she felt abandoned by God. And so she wrote to a friend, a good friend, and explained this feeling of abandonment. And it didn't go, and it didn't go. And then there was a time, my memory is dull, so forgive me, I think in the 60s when when the Pope died and a new Pope was elected and Teresa writes to one of her friends and says, I've been spiritually awakened, I've found God, I feel that he's there and he's here in my prayers. And weeks later she writes and says, God's gone, where is he? I'm in darkness, I'm lost, I'm lost. And the truth is, the book of her letters, edited by one of the people of her own community now, and available online and in good bookshops and all that kind of thing, for the rest of her life, I think it's uh, 40 or 50 letters to her dearest friends, And every one of them is about the feeling of the absence of God and the futility of her work. So much so, which never went away. It never got better. It's not got a happy ending. So much so that when she died in 1997, her order decided to destroy the letters. You read all about this when you get the book. But the Vatican refused to allow, they told the Vatican, and the Vatican refused to allow them to do it because they said, these are the letters of someone who will possibly become a saint. They must be kept. And now they're published. And are they a testament to despair? No. They've become a testament to great faith. Faith in the darkness, faith in the struggle, faith when everything goes wrong, faith when you can't get the funding, faith when the ideas don't come together, faith when you're let down by people that you trust most. That is what faith is about, I think. It's my experience. Thank you.
0: Great questions coming in. Keep them coming, please. Uh, Let's start on them. Um, How does this community focus fit with the modern cult of leadership in the church?
1: Hmm. I think that leadership, Jesus' way, is about servanthood, isn't it? Um, uh, you know, I, I was reflecting, actually, I'm going to sound very spiritual now, <laughs> but it so happens that I was thinking about uh, the, um, the hymn in Philippians chapter 2 this weekend. You know, Paul quotes this Old hymn, or the hymn that they sing in the church Jesus Christ doesn't rhyme in English, of course. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be clung to, but emptied himself and became a servant, etc., etc., and how he goes down, 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 all the way to death on a cross. And Paul says, Have this mind amongst yourselves. Let this be a hallmark of your relationships that you are like this. This, so in Jesus who does all of this, in Jesus who washes the feet of his disciples, dusty feet of his disciples at that supper they had, in Jesus who takes the blow and doesn't return it, who teaches to take the blow and not return it, who demonstrates that as he hangs on a cross and really does take the blow and not return it. The question is, is all of this some some temporary abandonment of what God's really like? Whilst for three years Jesus serves everybody and washes feet and takes the blows and lays his life down. And the answer is no. This isn't an abandonment of what God is like. This is who God is. As I say to people very often, I say to myself, if you want the bully boy God, the God who leads from the front with "You do this," and pushes you around the God with the, the, uh, the, the God with those kind of big boots on. You've chosen the wrong religion. because our faith is a faith where we we're, we're called to be like our heavenly Father. imitate Christ. And then Paul writes about Christ the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience etc etc long suffering self control faithfulness this is what Jesus is like imitate Christ so christian leadership isn't about hey i'm in front i'm in front and i've got you know a big car and a big house and a big this and a big that it's about serving serving from amongst the people be i say to myself let alone anyone else, become the best litter picker-upper in the building, become the person who stays to stack the chairs, who stays to have another conversation with someone, become that person. I, I think that's the way forward. Why then,
0: says this next question, is so much violence done in the name of religion and how do we counteract this? Uh-huh.
1: Violence is done. I I don't have flashy answers to any of these things. Violence is done. And it's not just violence, is it? It's, um, it's, It's what's not done. It's the apathy. It's the turning the eyes the other way so we don't see the pain of the refugee. So we don't see the pain of the homeless person the person that can't afford a rent in this city. We should get on our knees and weep for the situation in terms of housing in this city. For instance, people that are trafficked tonight in this city, the women that will be raped, the children that will be abused. But there's a lot of crime done in the name of religion. And the problem is simply this, that each one of us has free will. If you ask my theology around this, it's this. I do not believe, I say say it like this, it's controversial, but I say it to be controversial and make people think. I think that God is always doing his best. Why are there wars? Why is there killing and fighting? Why will people have lost their lives in terrorist attacks today? Is it because God doesn't care? Is it because he doesn't answer our prayers for peace? It's because we have free will. I know God doesn't always get his own way. I know he's not in control of everything. I know for certain, (coughs) some Christians argue theologically that he is, but I know they're wrong. Shall I tell you how? I know me. I know that if God's in control of everything in the entirety of the rest of the universe, he's not in control of everything in my life sometimes. I hang on to that pound that I should give away. I hang on to that time. I hang on to that thought, that good thought, instead of congratulate the person. I can act selfishly. I I can betray my calling. I can look like sometimes like I'm approximating to Christ and sometimes as though I'm walking away from it I have done bad things in the name of Christ I'm sure there are people in this world that have been offended by me and hurt by me and say well why does religion do all of these things we could talk for a long time about the history of the church and its abuse of people of other faiths and other religions about the abuse uh, of the uh, the churches, abuse of people of other ethnicities ethnicities and colour. We know the story of the um, Dutch Reformed Church in South Africa that invented a whole theology to keep black and coloured people separate from white people based on verses in Genesis. We know the story of the churches in America who uh, were against the civil rights movement, the um, moral majority who stood out against uh, black people. We know the story today of the church that denies a welcome to people who are gay and lesbian, and drives them out and curses them, and says, go get healed. You can be gay, but never tell anyone. You can be gay, but you'll be on your own for the rest of your life. Why is all this done? Because God grants us freedom, which is a beautiful gift and a huge responsibility.
0: There'll be opportunity to meet Steve at the end. Let's keep to the questions that are coming in here please Um, how does the church get the message of the kingdom across in this secular
1: age I think the church gets the message of the kingdom of God across in this secular age as it has done in every age Jesus said by your love for one another they know you're my disciples you know, the, the, the people in Jerusalem and across the Roman world saw the love that the disciples had for one another and for others. It's always about what we do, it's about how we live our lives. It's not about what we sing in our buildings. It's about what we do on the streets. It's how we take our faith. And it's the integrity of who we are. I feel incredibly excited about the future of the church. I'm not pessimistic at all. You know, i really not. I'm not saying that, you know, you'd expect me to say that because I'm speaking in a Christian cathedral. You know, kind of try to keep, get them to keep their pep- uh, pecker up. Tell them it's going well. The truth is, I think the church is the best kept secret, and I think that's our problem. We've kept it a bit secret, but but in rea- you know it was announced. I, I work alongside the UN, so here's the thing. I'm a Baptist, as it I was told, uh, as you were told. When I was a Baptist, when I was a young kid, I used to go to Baptist church meetings, and they were so disorganised. You know, I like they couldn't organise a birthday party properly if they were given six months notice you know that's how I felt about my church and then I was a bit older and I, I went to theological college and I became, I became a, a, um, a leader in a Baptist church and I joined the Diagona, the leadership team and it was a right old muddle and mess sometimes and people used to say we are so amateur we are so amateur and then as the years went by I got more and more involved in that and then I got involved in local government And I went to local government meetings and it made me suddenly think, boy, the Baptist church meetings were pretty slick. Do you know, it's kind of like, whoa, we really knew what we were doing, you know. And then I got involved in national government. Do you know, I sit on all sorts of groups from time to time for national government and it makes me think local government's pretty good. And here's the thing, I now am involved with sitting at the United Nations from time to time. And now I know those meetings in that Baptist church in South Norwood in my teens were fantastic. (laughs) The amount they got done for the minimum use of words compared to the maximum use of words and the minimum output is incredible. The church is this wonderful institution. Let me tell you a brief story. One of our schools in Southampton, and, uh, there, and, and there's, an old, there's an old Methodist church that shut down, the building shut down. And the few people that were left there were disturbed about this, but the building couldn't be kept open. And we run a big secondary school around the corner, and we talked to the Methodists, and the Methodist hierarchy gave us use of the building for, educa- uh, for education through the week, for kids that found it hard to be in a room of 30 kids, you know, because of their behavioural difficulties because of the way they've been abused or treated. They need just the safety and the security of a, a quieter place. And some of the elderly people that used to go to the Methodist church was now, that's now shut started coming back to help us. And this happened about a year and a half ago. I was in the Methodist uh, building where we got about 12 kids who are uh, struggling. And so we're providing education for them there. And they arrive and there's a, there's a pool table in the corner and the kids arrive and it's about socialization and building relationships these young people have never been loved never been cared for, no one's ever read to them, no one's ever smiled at them no one ever touches them, we love instead of slap them around anyway this old man comes in, he's in his eighties, he's been a Methodist all his life and the, the church is shut and he comes in and one of our staff said to me Steve watch this and there's this little lad there who's um, uh, who's um, a year um, eight, so he's 12 years old. Yeah? And, uh, and my friend on our staff says to me, this kid, is so aggressive because of the way his brain is wired, the neuroscience of that, because of the abuse he's taking, he has to be aggressive. It's just an instinctive reaction. When someone shouts or beats him at anything, he lashes out. But she said, watch this. And I watched this old guy, this old man, pick up a a pool stick and he went with this lad and he put his arm round him. They'd obviously knew each other and he handed him the other pool stick and they began to play. And this old guy plays with this young 12-year-old. They play pool and the old man wins and it's obvious he's going to pot the black. And my friend says to me, you watch what happens and the old man pots the black and then smiles at the young man and the young man high fives him. And the teacher, our staff member said to me, a few months ago he would have taken his pool stick and smashed it over his opponent's head. But he doesn't anymore, his brain is being rewired. And then the old man walks with this young guy and he, with his arm around him and he goes to the kitchenette and he made him a cup of coffee. And then after the cup of coffee, they went and sat at a computer and the old man began to work through on the computer a literacy course with him. He began to read with him. And do you know why that moment is so powerful? I'll tell you why. Because that young man knows that no one is paying the old man. He's not a social worker, he's not a family support worker, he isn't a teacher, he's not, he's not been paid to be there, he's not a probation officer, he's not been appointed by the local authority. No one is giving him a penny. He is there out of sheer love. And that love conquers everything, and that young man's brain you could almost see it, is being rewired. The circuitry is being rewired in those instants, as he has to come to fact to grips with the fact that there is another in the world who loves him and demands nothing from him. And I put it to you that that is the genius of the church. And I put it to you that there is not an agency on this planet. There are many good ones. There are many great ones. But there's nothing like the church across the planet who has at its heart this understanding, its core mission to build the kingdom of God, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? It's the other, the person that's not like you. How different is that 12-year-old boy to the 80-year-old man? Different style, different clothing, different language. The old man is scared of him because he's he's a rebel. But the old man knows that he's got to cross the floor and embrace the other because as he embraces the other, there's something in him that's changed and he grows and he confronts his Fears and he overcomes them. And at the age of 80, he's still a learner. That is the genius of the church. I can't remember what the question was, but I'm excited about that. <laughs> uh,
0: I, Steve, as you you can tell, is a is a tigger in the church, uh, and I'm a bit of an eel. So I want to come back on that. Yeah. Because your stories have happy endings, Hmm. but not all stories do. No, they don't. And I run a a service which we will have here on the 10th of October to begin Hate Crime Awareness Week. And all those people who come in to here to mark that Hate Crime Awareness Week are usually people, when they come in, I can see it, they don't know if we're their friend or not. Because they're people who are hated by people for who they are for their faith, their religion, their sexuality, whatever it happens to be. And the church has so often, and still does, contribute to that hate in various ways, yes. which is why I think the church should be taking the lead in correcting some of that, yes. because it has helped bring it about. So I want to take us to the stories that don't have happy endings, yeah. and say, how do, we, how do we go alongside people and say we are trustworthy as a church because I, you're contagious. Mm. I can feel myself
1: getting drawn, but I don't think it's always like that. No, it's not always like that. There's a branch of Oasis, part of Oasis, which, which does housing. In fact, the first thing that I ever set up when Oasis was just me was a house for um, girls that had been abused. It's impeccable. We still run it. And my wife, um, this was in the 1980s, and my wife, whose name's Cornelia, we take in these girls, we give them a roof and a bed, but actually we're giving them love and nurture, and they've been knocked around sexually, physically, emotionally, etc., etc. And my wife, Cornelia, said we should call this Oasis, which is how Oasis got its name. And now Oasis has spread to lots of places. Now we run lots of houses, and we have a housing wing, which is called Oasis Aquila, and we help, we house about 200 people, mostly women, but we help a thousand people, around about a thousand people a year into independent living, who are the kind of people that you're talking about. This will sound shocking to you, but it so happens that just this month, the month of September, five of the people we work five people we work with have committed suicide just this month. Not every story has a happy ending. Mm -hmm. But every unhappy ending, for me, I mean, it's just to do with it. Because we're a team, you know, back to that. So you don't have to be like me and I don't have to be like you. We are together, you know. But for me, every tragedy like that. um, Last week, a young man threw himself... uh, uh, We were working with him. We weren't housing him. We were trying to house him. He threw himself off... um, off a river, off a, uh, off a huge bridge um, and he threw him, uh, 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 the, the river Tyne and he threw himself into the river and was lost. So what does that do to me? That makes me ask the question, how do we do this better?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How do we do this more? How do we keep working at this? Um, no, every story doesn't have a happy ending. Last year, um, my wife um, got cancer. Exactly this, um, well not either, um, June last year. Um, she got breast cancer. And um, last summer, was she had four operations. And it brings you face to face with the fact that you might lose her. It's a funny thing, marriage, isn't it? You know, we've been married 35 years, and I remember all those times I thought, "Oh, if I wasn't married to you, that would be great. <laughs> you know, kind of like, you know... Uh, you, yeah, I know you've thought that as well. You're just all going, oh, not us, because... know. Yeah, so, And then you reach this place where, um, where you look at the possibility of losing one another, and it's, it's a hard, hard thing. And whilst Cornelia was in hospital, happens to have recovered, and uh, she's not on chemotherapy or except anything. She, they say they've got it all. But while she was in hospital, she had a friend in our church, who's four years younger than her, called Brenda. And whilst Corny was in hospital in Guy's, Brenda was in St Thomas's with ovarian cancer. And I went to see Brenda one day before going on to see Corney, and Corney asked how Brenda was, and I said, she's okay. The next day, she died. And whilst Corney was in hospital for another operation, I was taking Brenda's funeral and wondering, well, I told, you know, so I had to sit at Cornelia's bedside and say, Brenda's died. These are tragic stories. Mm. But I do believe, Mark, that's why we're the church. And I Mm. believe that Mm -hmm. this place is a place of fantastic sanctuary to people, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Across the centuries, this place has been a place of sanctuary, and I believe that every church building, every church community is a place of sanctuary. We have to say, whatever your story, whatever's gone wrong, whatever's broken down, you are welcome, and we are with you. And we can't perhaps sort your issues, but we will be with you, and we will be yours, and you will be welcome. Thanks.
0: You talked about Naomi's amnesia but for many people the difficulty, the paralysis in life is not from forgetting, it's from remembering uh, and remembering their past because in a way we are what the, our past is doing now yes. and there's, there's a question here about, you say in your book that God does not do guilt, how come church people always induce guilt in me then?
1: I think it's because we need to rethink our theology. I mean, let, just be honest. Do you know if, um, do you I, I don't know, if we were, if we all worked for Starbucks, do you know, and Starbucks was losing market, um, uh, um, it, losing the market, people were drifting away, and they're all ending up going to Costa or wherever they go. Do you know, and our sales are going down and we're becoming more and more unpopular. It's no good saying, hey, we've got it all going right. It's all going well. We have to ask ourselves these questions. Why does church, the church, induce so much guilt in so many people? Why do so many people creep away from our churches because they were made to feel bad? They believed the wrong things. They expressed the questions they had and they were drummed out, or told they were wrong, or told they were not believing the Bible right. Why does that happen? I think that we need to address that. I try to address it in our local church, um, I'm not saying we're any good at it, but do you know, our church is, well, it, it, it's like a zoo really, in some ways. There are people with all sorts of views and all sorts of opinions and all sorts of doubts and worries and troubles. And I believe that my job, because the, 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 I am the senior leader, must be the, to be the chief dispenser of grace to People the church that i 'm minister of it 's a strange thing. I became the leader of it twelve years ago, and there were ten elderly people in it. It seats four hundred and fifty people, but there were ten elderly people, and the church was actually open eleven well five to eleven to five past twelve on a Sunday and shut for the rest of the week. Anyway, I went along and I talked to these 10 people in one pew every week and slowly people came and then they didn't stay. And they'd say to me, oh, that was great, but I knew they were never coming back. I knew because you go to church for community. And I knew they wouldn't return. And then there's the early adopter that does return and, and you get a few more. And I remember this thing happening. We reached the place where there were probably about 50 people that came, but a whole load of them were smokers. And we've got, you know, it's, it's not grand like here, but you know that the steps outside and before communion and sometimes before the sermon, people would go out and they had a fag on the steps before coming back in to listen to me. I'm grateful it was only a fag they needed. But they had a, that's honestly true. People are always popping out for a cigarette on the steps. And then one of the people in the church who'd been there for years, she came to me and she said... This is disgraceful. You have to have standards. Where are the standards? We have people smoking on the steps and then coming to take communion. And then she added this, it's a disgrace. And I thought about that a lot. And I realized that the word she used was exactly right disgrace. And what she was dispensing, and I don't blame her, because she was only doing what she'd always been taught. She was dispensing a disgrace. And I sat down with her and I said, we do have standards, and our standard is grace. And we will demonstrate our standard of grace constantly to all. If you've been hurt by the church, the church you're part of I'm sorry I am sorry I've been hurt by Christians as well mm. I've been told I was telling Mark just earlier almost I tell you almost every day I'm told by someone in the church that I'm going to hell that's the truth literally every day for years people write to me and say I'm a false teacher and I'm letting down God somebody wrote to me recently it was Fantastic. They said, I was letting down God. I was letting down the Trinity. I was letting down Jesus. I was letting down Charles Spurgeon. He was a great uh, Baptist minister. I was letting down the, denoma- the Baptist denomination. And they added, and you're probably letting down your mother. So that was kind of, <laughs> of <life. laughs>
0: um, Time ticks on, Sorry. and I, want, I just want to get through a couple more very important hmm. questions. The first is focusing on... Uh, on something you touched on, very important, about your work in schools. Mm. And uh, how do you encourage all schools, not just OASIS ones, to help students form their
1: telos? Ah, well, (laughs) that is a great question. I've got a friend here, her name's Jill. Jill, why don't you stand up and wave? Stand up. There you are. There you go, Jill sat down. Uh, Jill is the national ethos director for Oasis. So uh, we run 47 schools and lots of houses and other things and we have a central finance team because we believe finance is really important. Our theology needs to work its way out through our finance. We have an HR team, we have an IT team, we have hundreds of people, probably, well, hundreds, we probably have about 150 people that work on IT for us every single day. We have governance teams, we have PR teams, we have all of those things. We have an estates team that looks after our buildings around the country. We call them backroom services. Many of you will be very familiar with all these terms. So we have a theology and ethos team because if it's important our schools have got their, their um, finances straight, oh, and we've got an education team and it's important they've got their maths curriculum sorted and their RE curriculum sorted and their science curriculum consorted sorted, it's important that we work just as hard at our ethos and our values and our habits and who we are. Who are you? Why are you here? The biggest question, the moral question, the question of character, the lighting of a fire. We've just uh, been in a big conference today um, in Nottingham talking about those things. They're really important. You see, if you know all this, if you want, if you If you want your son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter to get an A to C, A star to C in maths, GCSE, you don't just send them to a school where they've got a great multi-active whiteboard and you've heard that there is a maths teacher who once went to Cambridge. You don't think that, well, there's there's a smart board there and there's a maths teacher there, so I guess just by osmosis, if they hang around, it'll all come out fine. We know that maths has to be taught intentionally. Literacy has to be taught intentionally. A modern foreign language has to be taught intentionally. We have work programs, we work through it. uh, We're evaluating how students are developing in their understanding. But then we say, oh, yeah, well, generosity, kindness, joyfulness, compassion, servant-heartedness, love for others, self-control, faithfulness, integrity, resilience. Oh, they just pick that stuff up. If we put a cross on the wall, I think it would work by magic. It doesn't. So we work as intentionally at that, and whilst I'm at it, I think we do this in churches as well. I'm sure this isn't true of this great cathedral, but because I grew up in Baptist churches, what used to happen was this. I'm not knocking Baptist churches either. I'm still a Baptist and a Baptist minister. But what we used to do was we used to send the kids out to the kids' work, and we, you know, all the grown-ups stay in for a sermon on Paul's epistle to the Romans. And when we took, look at justification and sanctification and holiness and the work of the cross, and we send out the kids to do kids stuff you know there 's that story of Jesus and the Good Samaritan and you know the five loaves and the you know etc etc and and, and uh, uh, you know the the parable of um, the parable of loving your neighbor and all of that it 's all wonderful stuff. And the story of Zacchaeus up a tree, it's wonderful for kids because they can do little drawings and watch films and sing songs and do actions and they can all pretend to be a Samaritan and they can work it out in a play. Isn't it wonderful Jesus told all those fantastic parables and stories? Isn't it fortunate because he thought of the children's curriculum whilst we do the important stuff. And in that way we rob the gospel of its entire moral content. Because Jesus' parables are not children's stories, they're challenging stories that challenge our state and our nation and Europe and the United Nations. What is it to love your neighbour? Who is my neighbour? That question our governments need to grapple with. So it's adult stuff it's adult stuff, we've got to put the moral content of Jesus' teaching back on the agenda. A gospel that goes, Jesus died on the cross for you, pray this prayer, accept him, he rose again, by the Holy Spirit you will have eternal life, is a gospel of a long weekend. Because Jesus, you know, he he could have arrived from heaven on Thursday, upset the Pharisees and the priests by smashing up the temple, which he did on Thursday afternoon, Um, said some blasphemous things which they thought he was saying on Friday morning, being crucified, risen from the dead and being back into heaven in a long weekend. So if the sum total of the gospel is all about the cross and the resurrection, it is central to the gospel. um, But if it's all about that, what's all the other stuff for? It's the moral content. It's about our character and our development and we've got to work hard at it. And then it will answer some of the other questions, won't it? There'll be people who start coming to church and they say, they don't make me feel guilty anymore. Because we have developed the social skills of welcoming people and being generous and being faithful to them and being other-centered. The more effort we put into the moral content of Jesus' teaching, the more I think some of these other issues the church has got will sort themselves out. Uh,
0: you've talked uh, about people of other faiths, en, en passant, as it were, but um, somebody's just asked, if we will be saved through Christ, how about the people who are not Christians?
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a big question at 5 to 8. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let, let me say these things, and, and, and forgive me for everything I don't say, you know, because you know, many people have written about this. I got to know John Stott in the last years of his life. You know, he was at All Souls Langham Place. He was very kind to me. We used to sit and have tea together. And I talked to, with him about this subject on many occasions. And I read uh, some of the things he's written, or well, the things he's written on it. So this is a combination of my thoughts and great teaching and learning from John Stott in all of this. But there are several things to say about it. It's strange, isn't it, if God runs a postcode lottery. So, you know, if you're born in Bournemouth, you might become a good Anglican. And because you become an Anglican, I guess there's a lot of Anglican churches in Bournemouth, you do really well. But if you're born in Baghdad, and you're a good person, you're much more likely to become a good Muslim. Is God running a postcode lottery even before postcode lotteries existed? So your chances of inheriting eternal life are down to how close you live to a decent church. And as you've already said, Mark, there's a lot that aren't decent. So, so the truth is, you know, I don't become a Christian because I go to a church where the vicar has had his hands in uh, till for ages and the church is always shut and there's no care and no compassion and i've tried going and no one says hello to me they're a miserable bunch so i give up and then god judges me for that or what about the child that dies before they can know or etc 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 so you see if god is love if he's a, he is love and if god is love and a greater moral being than we are And we can see all of these issues, how much more can God see them than us? That's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is this. Jesus said, and it's often quoted, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's used as a verse to say anybody of any other faith or somebody who's not a Christian or someone who never went to church or someone who went to church once and stopped going, they will die and be burnt forever. That's not what Jesus actually said. As C.S. Lewis points out, Jesus said, I am the way to the Father. He didn't say everybody would know about the way. David Watson, another great Anglican uh, teacher um, who died of um, cancer some years ago now, wasn't it? David Watson, I remember hearing him say once, he said, he said, every time I go down to Wales to speak, I go across the Severn Bridge. In his lifetime, there was only one Severn Bridge. And he said, uh, he had cancer by then. And he said, I have a driver who takes me now, and sometimes I'll fall asleep. He said, I love that Seven Bridge. What a feat of engineering. Sometimes I'll fall asleep and I don't see it. And my driver wakes me up when we're in Cardiff and says, We're here. He says, I didn't experience the Seven Bridge, but I still know it was the Seven Bridge that got me there. Jesus is God's love in action. But the last thing I'd say is, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, you probably know this, that the Jews never thought of Judaism as a religion. It's called the way. If you read Isaiah, it becomes obvious to you, for instance, it was the way of life. And Jesus was a rabbi and he said, take my yoke upon you, because it's not heavy like those other rabbis' yokes. You know, yoke was a formal term for teaching. So the Torah, the written law in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible as the Jews uh, think of it, the rabbis' job was to interpret what it meant. What it meant not to work on the Sabbath. Some rules were draconian and backbreaking, and some were more liberal and life-enhancing. And this was called your yoke, or it was actually called a midrash as well. Your that's that's how a rabbi taught my understanding and interpretation of this Jesus says take my yoke upon you because it's like it's not like those back-breaking burdens that all those priests and Pharisees try to slap on you and nail you to the floor and make you feel guilty with take my yoke upon you Uh, Jesus says all this so he says knowing that Judaism's the way he says I am the way my yoke my way my midrash my teaching My interpretation, I am the way. I am the truth. You see, it all worked out in me. Uh, You've heard people say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, written by Moses, but I'm telling you it's not like that. Uh, You've heard people say, X, Y, and Z, but I'm telling you it's not like that. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. My yoke is easy. Come my way. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the father, knows the father in relationship in this life as a father rather than a bitter and angry judge who's always laden in them with guilt unless they walk with me. Tom Wright, oh boy, I can't stop quoting Anglicans, can I? (laughs) It's kind of like Tom Wright... (laughs) Um, uh, Who's at St. Andrews now, former Bishop of Durham? Tom's written a lot about this. You should read a book called Surprised by Joy, written by um, Tom Wright about heaven, hell, judgment, etc., etc. And Tom simply says this. Well, he says a great deal, I shouldn't say. He simply say it. it's a brilliant book. But Tom says this. He says, Jesus' emphasis isn't on life after death, it's on life before death. Live now. Build the kingdom of God. Serve someone else. You'll find me in the poor. Think I'm hiding from you? Go look in the eyes of someone who has nothing. You'll find me there. You'll find me in the least. That's how you'll find me. People are always running off to California, to LA, to find themselves and find God. It's easy and it's quicker to go look at somebody and spend some time with someone who's got nothing to give you. Jesus said you'll find life and yourself and meaning and purpose there you see? So Tom says the emphasis about life here and now, he says, and that's what we're told about, that's Jesus' yoke. Jesus also gave some sign posters to life beyond this one, but he says they're only signposts. You know like you're driving through Kent and there's one of those, you're at a T-junction and there's a little white sign and it says little Fittleworth, this way, white sign, three and a half miles, greater Fittleworth, that way, four miles. It's a signpost. You know greater Fiddleworths that way and lesser Fiddleworths that way. You don't know how big or little either are. You don't know if they're picturesque villages or just housing estates. You don't know if one has a cricket square and a a pond and a pub. You don't know whether it's a rambling estate or one road. You don't know because it's only a signpost. And Tom says this brilliantly. He says, all that we have in Scripture is signposts but not hard realities, which we love punishing other people with. You'll go, you won't go to heaven, you'll go to hell, somebody said to me just this week. How do they know? I trust to leave it all with God, who is love. I don't pronounce judgment on anyone. What a strange thing that would be. Do you know, if somebody... I, I, I um, I um, have known because of my job, the last few prime ministers, and some uh, people will say to me from time to time, "Do you think the prime minister's a Christian? Is he a Christian?" And I always think, what's well, a funny stuff, funny thing. So I go, "Yeah, he is." Or, "No, he isn't." And God goes, "Do you know, Steve just said he isn't, but I 'm sh- I had him down as being one of mine. But now Steve Chalk has said that, I 'm going to have to reevaluate. Our judgments on these things matter nothing to anyone. Leave it all to the God who is the God of love and mercy.
0: And uh, as proof of God's existence, (laughs) as uh, proof of God's existence, our next speaker here on October the 20th is Tom Wright. So uh, (laughs) uh, come back and and hear Tom then. Where where does somebody in my position begin? I I suppose I, I believe this very strongly, that God has given everybody in this cathedral a great gift, and it is our being. And he asks for a gift in return, and it's called our becoming. And that that is why the subject of your book is enormously important, because Christians are seeking, I hope, to find the authentic life, Mm. where the mask stops eating into your face, Mm. and you can see each other. Mm. Um, Jesus' teachings, as you've brought out, don't always make sense, because they're there to try and make you. (laughs) Mm. And they teach us that ultimately human beings will always end up reflecting what they love most, Mm. which is why the telos is so important. So, for your energy, for your uh, articulate uh, love of the gospel, and for your continual, contagious expressing of the love of God, who you have said is generous and faithful, can I, on behalf of everybody in this cathedral, thank you so much tonight.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.